In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, the Northern Ireland elections are off, but the British-Irish romance is back on as Michal Martin and Rishi Sunak don their kiss-me-quick hats in Blackpool. Meanwhile, Mara Shevchevich, the EU's chief protocol negotiator, was in London saying that London and Brussels' positions were not worlds apart on the issues around the Northern Ireland protocol. We'll go through in detail what those issues are and how or when both sides might start to approach a landing zone. Spoiler, don't expect a deal wrapped up by Christmas. And we'll hear from RT's political correspondent Michal Lahan from Blackpool on the role Dublin might play in any negotiations and what the Irish government's expectations are about Rishi Sunak and the new optimism. So things very friendly, Michal, in Blackpool. Tell us about why you were there and why Michal Martin and Rishi Sunak appeared to be getting on so well. It was all smiles and football. All, all smiles and football. Even those kind of pre-meeting pleasantries didn't look quite as stilted as usual. Michal Martin did have the advantage of having met Dennis Irwin, who, of course, went. they went to the same school in Cork. And he's a Manchester United fan just before he met Rishi Sunak. So he could tell him that uh, and talk about, about football. Rishi Sunak, of course, is a Southampton fan, uh, which has an Irish goalkeeper too. And Michal Martin could have said that we we have your back with Gavin Dezunu in goal for Southampton, of course, who are facing relegation. But there was serious business on the table. But he did seem uh, fairly happy afterwards and said he sensed the determination from the British Prime Minister uh, that a resolution is possible. But the detail, there was no detail. Even Michal Martin himself saying that flesh must be put on the bones of all this now. Well, I don't want to get into timelines. I think uh, what's important is I think that we create space for those who will be negotiating between the EU side and the UK side. And, and that space is important uh, so that we don't have sort of daily speculation. Now, I know that's, that's your job. <laughs> but uh, from, from the government to government perspective, um, we, we want to see meat uh, uh, on the bone, uh, you know, in terms of the mood music is important. Proving we now need to translate that into a, a resolution, uh, an agreed negotiated resolution between the European Union and the United Kingdom. Was there any indication as to why Rishi Sunak came? I mean, I suppose a Prime Minister, Michal Martin, would have been there anyway as a matter of course, but for a British Prime Minister to be there, it's unusual. And unless there's something to be gained for it, it's hard, gained from it, it's hard to see why yeah. he would have gone. Well, I think there was a sense and his speech last night reflected that about this need for unity that he spoke about particularly in the context of what were called incoming global headwinds economically and of course his attendance here was in marked contrast to Liz Truss's approach where uh, she hadn't even uh, 
uh, made contact with the first ministers of Wales and Scotland. So there was that reason, but also a sense of urgency, yes, around the protocol uh, and a sense Michal Martin detected that a resolution was possible as quickly, quite quickly, it seemed, but no one willing to put an exact time frame on it. But the clear sense that things need to happen before Christmas, even if that hasn't been uh, voiced publicly but again a sense that there is some way to go on this that, that something has to happen quickly now to inject momentum into the process and that's the word that Michal Martin used at the concluding press conference uh, the need for momentum now uh, to generate talks he said substantial talks he said too that he believes uh, and got a clear uh, sense last night and those talks with Rishi Sunak there was a clear sense that the British Prime Minister knows where the EU is coming from and he believes that will form the basis for good negotiations. Uh, so that was an interesting point. Uh, but again, clearly, the sense of urgency is in the air now and that the warm words ha has to be matched uh, by something tangible and something solid. As we were talking about last week on this podcast, and it, you know, it's not an exclusive opinion to this podcast by any manner or means, those headwinds that the last thing the UK needs now is a trade war with Europe with all with everything else that's going on a stable economy is basically Rishi Sunak's only pitch to, I mean firstly it's his job but secondly if he wants to be re-elected at the head of the Conservative Party it's his only pitch to the country that he's a steady hand on the wheel Yeah and that that view kind of widespread enough here I think you didn't have to delve too deep to find it and it, but at the same time a degree of panic in the air almost about what's going to happen economically. And that reflected in Nicola Sturgeon's words at the press conference in the last hour or so, where she spoke about being profoundly worried about what lies ahead and predicted incredible difficulties on the economic front. So yes, uh, a deal with the EU is seen as essential to trying to provide some stability in what will be, uh, despite that, a fairly unstable economic environment in the future. And Michael Gove then equivocating on whether or not that willingness would extend to pausing or delaying the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, saying it was above his pay grade? Yeah, Michael Gove didn't really give very much away at all, uh, saying it really wasn't uh, his place to, to make such an intervention or even to, to comment upon it. The Taoiseach, too, not going down that route when I asked him about would it be constructive or helpful if that legislation was paused or, or actually abolished or pulled but he, he didn't he didn't go there again reflecting back and and talking in more general terms about the window of opportunity but you don't get a sense uh, right now that that legislation is going to be stopped immediately perhaps it won't move at any quicker pace uh, but a, a pause or a stop judging by just solely on the words that are being used here doesn't seem eminent but perhaps that could change there is no executive up and running in northern ireland and therefore there was no first minister or deputy first minister present there to give an immediate dup reaction to all that was going on was there anything in the briefings around this with all the positive mood music as to how far the conservative party are prepared to go to get this through the DUP as much as anywhere else? No, there hasn't been an indication of how exactly this will all work. The Taoiseach today talking about mechanisms that can be found and mechanisms that can be worked out through businesses. He said that's where the nuts and bolts of a resolution can be agreed. 
it's interesting the word that was used by the British Prime Minister and again by Michael Gove today. They're not talking about compromise, even if ultimately it may have to resemble that. The word that has been repeated several times over the last 24 hours on the British side is pragmatism. That's the the key word here. But just how far pragmatism extends to placating the DUP's concerns around this and just how far uh, it lasts before it is ultimately described as a compromise along the way if there is to be a resolution. Well, that's not clear at the moment because I suppose the territory uh, that's going to be travelled isn't clear either. The Taoiseach saying, though, there is a clear understanding among business groups and among politicians of what the outstanding issues are, though. So that's it, Tony. Uh, Michal Lahan joining us there from Blackpool on a shaky line that thankfully will be cleaned up by the time the listeners are listening to this. So the DUP's opinion hasn't been garnered, but the mood music, even if for people who didn't see any of the pictures surrounding the press conference yesterday, it was very friendly. And Michal Martin was even more jovial when he came out of that meeting with Rishi Sunak. Has there been any improvement in the mood music in Brussels? Is there? Do we know what the context, at least on the European side, is for the improvement in this mood music? Yeah, I mean, we, we keep talking about mood music and optimism and, and it's, it's definitely there and, and there are clear reasons for that, um, that that we've discussed before. I mean, even to go back to Liz Truss when she became Prime Minister, even for a, a excruciatingly short period, she clearly had to play hardball to get the job as leader of the Conservative Party. And so she had shifted her entire position over to the hard right on Europe. Uh, but once she got the job, she was talking more about cooperation between the UK and the EU. She was talking about Ukraine. She was talking about geopolitical issues like China. She went to the European Political Community Summit in Prague. She won a lot of kudos for that. And then she's gone. Rishi Sunak comes along. Uh, he maintains this continuum of optimism. He's had a, a good meeting with Ursula von der Leyen. He's had a good meeting with uh, Emmanuel Macron. And there again, uh, a meeting, a very friendly meeting with uh, Michal Martin. So everyone loves this new optimism. But in the background, people are saying, OK, what does it mean? Um, does this mean that... As Michal Martin is... said last night, we want to see meat on the bones. We want to see this yeah. come to some kind of a resolution. This friendliness really only goes yeah. so far. I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it helps. Yeah, no, it, it does. Um, and um, it's, it, it has filtered through into the technical talks. I'm, t- I'm told by quite a few sources that when officials meet and they exchange... Uh, understandings on the technical issues around customs, on goods moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, on agri-food, on state aid, uh, and so on. That, that 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 the mood is good. That it's, it's you know it's a very cordial atmosphere. Uh, completely absent is the the um, frostiness uh, to to pardon the pun <laughs> uh, of uh, t- times gone by when even even the technical talks were were difficult. Uh, right. And, is uh, that because they're avoiding difficult subjects at this point? I mean, we have, you know, still the issue of governance to get through and the British objections to even the merest homeopathic trace of a mention of the European Court of Justice. At least that was the position. Do we know if that's changed or if it's just not being discussed at the moment in order to work through some of the practicalities like SPS checks and the like that Mara Shevchevic has, has been keen to talk about in the interests of a pragmatic compromise? Well, there's no doubt that they will 
push those more difficult issues to, to the end of the process. So the European Court of Justice, um, competition rules, the, the overall governance question. But I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm detecting some very nuanced thinking from the British side on the European Court of Justice. And it is the, 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 the bigger concept of, of governance. How do you manage the relationship between the UK and the EU on the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and how it operates? Because, I mean, let's face it, there are going to be issues all the time coming up when uh, you have British law and EU law entangled in, in Northern Ireland because of the unique circumstances of the protocol. You're going to have a- areas and issues where th- there's a, uh, a, an overlap or a clash in, in regulation and in law. The, the way it's put to me by British officials is that the EU wants a very solid, rigid framework that will set out the, the pathway over, over 10 or 20 years so that everything is clear and legally kind of locked in from the start. The British want something that's a lot more flexible where uh, you deal with problems as they arise and you assess the risk of those problems when it comes to the single market rather than have a rigid framework at the outset which doesn't provide for that legislation. Uh, so, so so, So the British essentially want to make sure that there's a lot more consultation between both sides, that it's a lot more structured, that Northern Ireland politicians might get more of a look in, um, and that you spot problems before they become, you know, a real flashpoint. I mean, an example on the British side would be tariffs on steel. Suddenly, there were 25% tariffs on steel goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. And that was a major shock to manufacturing. Um, British officials are saying, look, you know, why why was that not foreseen? Why could we not have spotted that early so that it doesn't become a big problem? Uh, likewise, an issue that the EU have raised, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, is this rather exotic uh, thing called citrus black spot, where it's, it's effectively uh, a disease that affects oranges and lemons. If... The UK now start to import uh, those products from South Africa, where this disease is apparently prevalent. But it's not. But the EU isn't uh, importing stuff from there. If that stuff gets into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, and then if somebody takes an orange on a trip to Seville for a weekend, throws away the orange peel, and suddenly uh, an industry in that is very precious to Spain is devastated. Now, this is a remote possibility but it's not an unfeasible possibility so right. again the, the British are saying let's deal with that issue as it arises now the EU will obviously say well if, if the issue arises yeah, and someone has late. tossed that peel into the plantation it's too late but that's the kind of thing that they're talking about right. um, and I, you know I, I, I think that the, the you know if they can find a way of dealing with this then the issue of having the European Court of Justice may not seem so scary for for the UK and it might be massaged in the latter part of the negotiations. But as the practicalities are ironed out, like say as the European Union, for example, gets access to the real-time data, the customs data that they were looking for in order to assess the risk of goods moving beyond Northern Ireland and into the single market, 
does that clarify where the European Court of Justice's role might come into play and maybe show how limited that role might be and allow movement forward? I suppose what I'm asking in a very long-winded way, which is not unusual on this podcast, is that does the pragmatism, does putting the pragmatism at the front of the negotiations process leave actually less and less to the end as some of those issues are ironed out? Well, I, th- I think the the ECJ is a really fundamental issue for the European Union. Uh, I mean, they're, what they're saying is if Northern Ireland is going to be part of the single market, then ultimately the only final arbiter of single market law is the European Court of Justice. And this is there not just so that the EU can be this bogeyman in the living in the heads of Eurosceptics in London, but it's also there for Northern Ireland companies if they feel that they're being unfairly competed against by a French or a German company, they can take a case to the European Court of Justice to to get some kind of uh, justice uh, there. Um, now it, it's there may there may be ways of adding another layer of arbitration uh, in 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 between so so that the ECJ is only there if you have a if you, if you have a final query about the finer points of, of EU law um, but you know that that's going to be a tricky one and again um, I think I think what they're going to front load in the negotiations is ways to make the sea border invisible and ways to make customs checks and regulatory formalities and agri-food checks uh, as invisible as possible so then you take away the physicality of the protocol uh, and again you 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 make that something that unionists can say well this is what we've won we've it's it's a sea border um only in name uh, so therefore we, we we have this victory in some ways looking at the northern ireland protocol bill even if it if it does get passed i suppose if it doesn't get implemented it becomes a rather notional thing sure it you know it, it does confer powers on ministers i think in fact the welsh shannath was saying they have recommended that it it wouldn't be uh, adopted the research arm of the welsh senate saying that there are concerns in the regional assembly there about the passage of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. But but the other legislation, the, the UK move to disapply EU law, it does that potentially further down the tracks because of the divergence it would allow? Do, does that potentially create more actual problems than the notional problems that are created by the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill if it's never implemented? OK, to, to take the, the Protocol Bill first... I mean, the, the the signals that I am getting from London is that if if there is a deal, then the protocol bill will be dealt with. Um, there is a provision within the bill which states that th- this bill and its provisions can be replaced by an agreement between the UK and the European Union. So that is the the escape hatch, if you like, for the protocol bill. So hi, so um, just 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 to, uh, just to clarify that any deal between the European Union and the UK would trigger new legislation that would explicitly state that the other it it supersedes what was in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Is 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 that the way it yes, would work? Uh, yes, I mean that yeah. that's effectively okay. it. There there is a there is a, a part of the Protocol Bill which states that um, the the provisions of the bill will be superseded if there is a deal between London and Brussels on the protocol. So that that is really where you could see the protocol being bill being 
diffused um, in in the final stages of of a negotiation. Um, but you know, again, there are a lot of other issues that that are potentially going to trip up this process. Um, right. You know, on 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 customs and 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 SPS and so on. Right, and and uh, w- with regard to the other process that was ongoing, although it initially there was talk of disapplying the entire canon of EU law before Christmas, I think, when Rishi Sunak was running for the leader of the Conservative Party. That's now been pushed out on a longer timeline because it would basically gum up the works uh, of Whitehall in terms of legislation being drafted, etc., etc. Has that caused much concern in Europe, the implications of that, even sight unseen as to what legislation would replace it, the act of disapplying EU law and the potential widespread divergence that that would give the scope for the UK to engage in? Yeah, I mean, people are looking at this from a number of angles. Firstly, as you say, if the UK is going to have this bonfire of EU regulations, now, like, it's, it's important to, to remember that when when the UK left the EU, what they did was at a at a sweep they converted huge swathes of EU regulations into British law. Okay, so so this is now called it's British law, but it's effectively law that is uh, you know a legacy of EU membership going back forty years. So you've had uh, thousands of regulations which are now British law effectively on the British statu- statute book, which but which are you know reflect and mirror the the regulations and the and the directives that Britain uh, took on board as as a member now uh, to 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 burn those regulations overnight is seen as a catastrophic uh, move for for Whitehall and for just the way the the, the UK works if if these if these laws are simply repealed or or swept off the statute book with nothing to replace them, then you could have legislative uh, chaos. Um, it, it is also uh, seen as a problem for the divergence agenda. The more the UK diverges away from EU legislation, um, then the thicker the sea border becomes mm. in theory. So th- again, that's, that's a problem for business that, as well. They, they want to know... They, they want to have the clarity as to what regulations apply if they want to export goods. Yeah, I mean, the, the, like that, that will apply for all sorts of things, like for, for, the, for, you know, for the working time directive, for parental leave, all sorts of regulations across the board that could fall under the, the, the machete of, of this, this, uh, this, this bill. Um, but again, it looks like, according to reports in the UK, that the bill is being long fingered. Uh, there was a report last week, I think, in the Financial Times that they had discovered 1,400 New laws which they weren't aware of, which were which fell under this umbrella of retained EU law, um, and it would just take uh, a huge amount of uh, effort and work by civil servants to to replace all these laws. Um, I mean, the other angle for this is how much is Rishi Sunak beholden to the right wing of his party, and if he keeps jettisoning jettisoning uh, those promises uh, of the bonfire of EU regulations mm. and a Brexit opportunities minister, um, you know, what's left for them uh, other than the, the Northern Ireland Protocol and taking a hard line there. So again, this is something that the EU uh, really kind of want to know about. Well, the European point man on this, Tony, is Mara Shevchevic. What has he been saying to give us an indication as to how this mood music is playing out in uh, in Europe? Well, he was in London this week, uh, Column He was attending the the 
EU-UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly, which is uh, a forum that was created by the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. It's the second time they've met. The first time was in Brussels. And he was talking there about the, the new optimism and the, the, the importance of the EU and UK to have a more stable and productive relationship with uh, Ukraine and so on. Uh, but he made some very interesting comments about how both sides were not that far apart on the key issue of the the movement of goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. We can hear now what he says. I believe that our respective uh, positions are not worlds apart if we genuinely explore the EU's robust proposals aimed at simplifying and facilitating trade between East and West while ensuring no hard border between North and South on the island of Ireland. We indeed must use all our energy uh, to build the kind of cooperation we need in today's world. Respecting our mutually agreed agreements centered around trust is an intrinsic part of it. So that was Maro Shevchevich there talking to uh, MPs and MEPs at the Parliamentary Partnership Assembly in London this week. And I think, you know, you could hear that he, it, trust is very important for the EU because they have been burned quite a few times by successive British Prime Ministers in terms of sticking by agreements and and treaties. But clearly, he's saying, look, we can do this if the UK takes a serious look at the EU's proposals. Now, th- this really gets down to the, the you know a, a major central issue in these negotiations. The UK clearly want the protocol to be changed substantially um, obviously the protocol bill would, would have it replaced altogether that's not going to happen um, but the UK want big changes and and they would they have asked that uh, Maro Shevchevich get a new mandate to do that now that mandate hasn't been forthcoming so the question is where is the give going to happen now my understanding is that if the the finishing line is in sight then the EU will move further uh, on the protocol. The mood among member states is still that they're not changing the protocol, they're not going to renegotiate it, um, they will find flexibilities within it. But what I understand is the way this thing might unfold is that in in the same way that you have the Good Friday Agreement, but then you have these subsequent agreements like the, the St Andrews Agreement and so on, the Stormont House Agreement, they are there which add to the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement hasn't been subtracted from. In the same way, you could have a situation where nothing is subtracted from the Northern Ireland Protocol, but you have add-ons, you have addendums, and those could be legally negotiated between the UK and the EU. Uh, and they would they would essentially crystallise whatever flexibilities that both sides can can land on in these negotiations. And then if you have something that is, you know, a legal addendum, that's something that is easier for for unionists to say, well, look, we've got this, which shows that X, Y and Z. Uh, It's it shows the it allows the EU to say that we didn't, you know, buckle. The protocol is still intact. Uh, We we are not going to be bossed around by the DUP or the ERG. Um, And it would allow the UK government to to say to the ERG, look, this is something that unionists are happy with. Um, So so that's where the the final horizon of these talks might look like. 
Um, but it is going to be a long stretch. So that's why I don't think we're going to see a deal before Christmas. There's simply too much technical work that has to be done. Once the technical work has been done by the, the teams, then that's the point where you start getting political shaping of, of, of a final deal and that the real hard negotiations will, will happen at that point. Um, and again, as we've talked about before, I think a key issue here is going to be data access and, and the, the ability for the EU to, to look forensically and closely at what's coming into Northern Ireland and to calibrate the sense of risk to the single market uh, from that point. And, and where are things at with the data access, Tony? Well, the UK have essentially built this new system which combines five different data access um, p- platforms, if you like, that, that govern all of UK uh, port and, and sea trade and, and other trade in and out of the UK. Um, and, and they've essentially blended these five systems into one system that the EU can can look at. They can, there's a so as I mentioned before, there's a drag and drop facility where you can see patterns if there's anything strange or unusual happening with uh, trade uh, consignments, uh, anything that looks suspicious that they might want to take another look at. Um, so, so this system has been essentially completed now by the UK. And my understanding is that EU officials are undergoing a trial uh, with this machinery in, in Northern Ireland. Now, I, I'm told that this these trials could take up to six weeks. So that gives you a, you know, a, a sense of how long it's going to take for this whole thing to be, to be dealt with. Um, but if, if, there are, if they are content with this, uh, then I think that does open up certain areas where the EU can say, well, look, as long as we can see what's coming into Northern Ireland, we can see any patterns that might pose a risk to the single market, um, then that helps us to reduce the numbers of checks uh, the nature of those checks. Um, but again, ultimately, what businesses often complain about is the paperwork they have to fill in before the goods are shipped to Northern Ireland. So that's another area where there's going to have to be a lot of work and a lot of compromise. Right. Maybe, maybe Easter, Maros Shevchevich will have done his Via Dolorosa <laughs> at that point, been scourged and everything else in, in keeping uh, with, with, with the season. All right, Tony, is there anything coming up in the short term that we should be keeping an eye on or was just those technical talks chipping along uh, under the surface? I mean, I think the technical talks will continue now and, and, you know, we will, I think, get into a much more in-depth and sustained period of technical talks uh, with more high-level intervention when needed, uh, phone calls between Mara Shevchevich and James Cleverly, the British Foreign Secretary. Um, But, you know, I think they will be left to to get on with that process and we will probably enter a quasi-tunnel, who knows, between now um, and December. Um, Simon Coveney is going to be in Brussels next week, next Monday, uh, at a Foreign Affairs Council. So we we may hear from him as to where he thinks things are going. Uh, But I think the the meeting in Blackpool really sets, sets the tone now for... Uh, optimism, but then a lot of hard work ahead. Right. It started with a roller coaster and it's ending with a roller coaster, perhaps. Okay, well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. <laughs>